Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary, a mini episode. In this episode, I'd like to discuss what we just discussed two days ago, which was Emily Wapker's conversation about World War II. Emily, of course, taught Cold War, or excuse me, the World War II class for a very long time. And then I took it over at a certain point, and I've been teaching it for several years. And I would also like to broaden the discussion to discuss the Cold War, and then finally to make some excellent movie and book recommendations at the end. Well, in a way, I was kind of in for the shock of my life when I started to teach World War II and the Cold War class. I was a child of the 80s, and I thought that I knew all about the Cold War, but in researching the class, I found out maybe 70% of what I would end up teaching were, were things that I didn't know before I started teaching. Um, and what I learned, what I uncovered was very, very dark and disturbing. And similar things happened with the World War II class. I think to a certain degree, I'm like everybody else. You know, you just kind of think, hey, I know all about World War II. After all, who has not seen 20, 30, 40, 50 World War II movies? Who does not think that they know absolutely everything about Hitler and the Nazis? Well, when I started digging into things, I found out that there were tons of things that I didn't know. Well, I, I don't want to go into every last little thing because this podcast then would be 500 episodes long as I go through the entire history of World War II and the Cold War. Let me just say instead that World War II did not exactly have the happy ending that I think I was taught when I was in school. What happened at the end of World War II was, I think you get about one half of a happy ending or maybe one third of a happy ending. Here's the happy ending part. Nazi Germany is defeated. Imperialistic Japan is defeated. Mussolini loses control of Italy. The West becomes a free place again. France, Spain, Italy, West Germany, Britain, they all have freedom, they have democracy, and that's good. So democracy is verified, at least in the West, as being a wonderful system, a great system. We can vote, we have civil liberties, we have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. We can say and do what we want to do as long as we respect the rights of others. It's great. West Germany and Japan become prosperous, happy democracies as well with voting, rights for women, all the civil liberties that I just mentioned, all of that is fantastic. What does not get said is that something like one half to two thirds of the world ends up in prison. The Soviet Union becomes a massive prison. Four years later, China becomes a massive prison. And that is nearly a billion human beings at the time, 1.4 billion now. North Korea becomes a prison. North Vietnam becomes a prison, eventually Cuba, and many, many other countries. It's very, very shocking to me because of the things that happened. Whenever people think about concentration camps or death factories like Auschwitz, they think of the Nazis, of course. But what they don't think about is the Soviet Union, how the Soviet Union had invented pretty much most of these things before the Nazis even got started. 
Hitler learned an awful lot from Joseph Stalin. And then Mao, in turn, also learned from Stalin. What you see in all of these communist countries, and I mean all of them, is you see nine really terrible things. The first of which is the end to civil liberties. People lose their freedom of speech. People can get arrested for saying the wrong things. People lose their freedom of religion. We can't have religion because religion is an alternative value system to communism. Communism was meant to provide everybody with a brand new set of morals and ethics. Religion was competition for that, and so it could not be allowed unless it served communism, which it very seldom did. So you would lose your freedom of religion, your freedom of speech, but you would also lose your freedom of assembly. In the Soviet Union, they often set up the apartments where the residents actually had a hard time talking to each other. You you had a very hard time. You were isolated from people. They really kind of wanted people's life to be work and then go home and be isolated. Now, the ultimate effect of this by the 1980s was there was rampant alcoholism in the Soviet Union. People were basically in the process of destroying themselves because they had been so beaten down. So loss of freedom of speech, religion, and assembly. Of course, there's no right to have a gun because they do not want you to defend yourself in any way, shape, or form. And then the last one I think I'll mention on civil liberties is you had no right to leave. If you were in the Soviet Union and if you hated it and if you wanted to leave the country, there was literally no other country that you were ever allowed to go to. The Soviet Union would keep you there. East Germany was a communist country and their philosophy was the worst thing you can do to the state, to the government, is deprive them of a worker. So therefore, if you try to escape, you should be sent to a hard labor camp or perhaps you should be shot. Civil liberties was the first point I wanted to make. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the secret police. Of course, the Nazis are famous for having the Gestapo, but the Soviets had the KGB, the East Germans had the Stasi, the the Romanians had a very terrifying secret police. These are the people who show up maybe at two in the morning in your house, pull you out of bed, and then you're never heard from again. Furthermore, if any of your friends ask, hey, what happened to Joe? Well, your friends might never be heard from again, so people learn not to say anything. If you've ever read the book 1984, 1984 is very much based on the Soviet Union. You should read 1984. It's really, really good. The third component I want to mention is propaganda. In all of the communist countries, they were excellent at propaganda. There was no news media to speak of. Of course, the Nazis were famous for propaganda because Dr. Joseph Goebbels was the minister of propaganda. There are maybe two or three Nazis that are actually considered to be very sharp-minded, excellent with words, quick minds. Goebbels, unfortunately, is one of them. There is a debate among some historians as to who hated Jews more, Goebbels or Hitler. Goebbels is truly a nasty man. But every communist society had thick propaganda. The Soviet Union had a newspaper called Pravda, and Pravda, of course, stood for truth, but there was no alternative side that was ever allowed to present anything. Citizens had to learn to read between the lines all the time. If you were reading the newspaper, you knew that half of it was false, and citizens apparently got reasonably good at figuring out which parts, which parts were not just slanted, but just 
flat out lies. The next thing that I want to bring up, I believe it is the fifth thing, fourth thing, is the cults of personality phenomena. Now the cults of personality is where we have to take the leader and somehow turn him into a god with a small g. It's not just enough that this person is in charge of the country. They essentially wind up needing to be worshipped. If you go to a search engine and type in images of, say, Joseph Stalin, you'll see all these beatific images where he's with children, where he's gazing into the future, where he's meeting with the workers. They make him look like a kind grandfather. Of course he was anything but. Stalin, according to some historians, killed 20 million of his own citizens. According to other historians, like Professor Rummel, he killed up to 60 million. I, I don't think we are ever going to know the correct numbers because it isn't exactly like they wanted to publicize this information to the world. They were very good at burying this information. Um, Hitler, of course, also created a cult of personality. Now, technically, he's not a communist. He hated the communists. Hitler's Nazi party stood for the National Socialists. Next, I would like to discuss famines. Every single one of these countries has famines. In 1932, in the Soviet Union, Stalin essentially triggered a famine in Ukraine. Now, Ukraine's a breadbasket. Ukraine can feed tens of millions of people beyond Ukraine. Uh, it's just a very, very lush, fertile land. But Stalin confiscated absolutely all of the food, and people were starving to death. There is a recent movie called Mr. Jones, which is about an intrepid reporter who worked for the New York Times who pursued this story, went to the Ukraine, investigated things, and he found out that, yes, indeed, there was a famine. Now, some estimates of the death toll of this triggered famine is 4 to 10 million people. Now, if it's really truly that high, that is just astonishing, 10 million. A lot of historians essentially will not dispute. If you say four, uh, others will say six to eight, others will say 10. This breadbasket produced tons of food, which Stalin then sold abroad so that he could buy weapons, so that he could create his police state. Uh, and plus, he just wanted to starve people to death. He wanted to starve the wealthy farmers of the Ukraine to death, their wealth was in front to him as a communist. He hated their whole idea of having wealth, having private property. These were the kulaks. Now, the thing is, the kulaks started off, I think, as property owners. So anybody with property was a kulak. And then once we ran out of property owners, then it was anybody who had a machine that had a motor. So if you had, I don't know, a tractor or some sort of device that had a motor, then suddenly you were considered to be the wealthy, you were the kulaks. Then I think once they were through getting rid of all of the people who had a motor, then they were down to the people who had tools. And on it went. On and on and on it went. Um, there are reports of cannibalism in some of these places with the famines going on in Ukraine in the 30s, for sure. There are reports of this. Let me move on to the economy. The economy in all of these countries, of course, is against private property, against any form of wealth accumulation, um, in favor of central planning. The planning is done by the government, it is done from the top down. 
Now, it's kind of a cliche, it's kind of a joke. In the Soviet Union, they used to say, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work. That was, I guess, a popular joke. Um, you can say many, many more things about the economies of these places, but they tended to stagnate. Um, the economy under Stalin did maybe reasonably well up until about 1952-53. Stalin, of course, died in 53. Khrushchev took over. And then immediately they recognized that they had dire trouble, that they were a very poor country. They had more than one famine. Um, the people were terrorized. And how to get them to produce? This was a perennial problem. And indeed, it appears that the economy of the Soviet Union over the next 35 years or so mostly shrank. You can basically get some work out of people in forced labor camps, which I will discuss next. Um, another trait of these dictatorships are gulags or concentration camps or forced labor camps. So there was an author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote a book that sold, I believe, more copies than Harry Potter. I'm not kidding. It was called The Gulag Archipelago. And it was published in the 70s. And an archipelago is a chain of islands. And so if you look at a map of the Soviet Union, there were hundreds of little red dots all over it. And this was the chain of islands to which Solzhenitsyn was referring. These were the gulags. These were the forced labor camps. This is how Stalin and others were going to build up their country. Now, to get sent to prison, oftentimes you basically had to do nothing and just be suspected, and you would get sent off to prison. Some of the stories are so ridiculous, they're hard to believe. There is one story where soldiers would come back from World War II. They had fought and bled to defend Mother Russia against the Nazis, and they were victorious. They came back home, but instead of getting a hero's welcome, Stalin would send them to the gulag for 10 to 25 years of harsh physical labor. Why did he do this? He did this because they had been exposed to the West. By being exposed to the West, he believed that they had been corrupted. They might pick up some capitalist ideas. They might pick up some ideas about free speech. They were corrupt. So therefore, off to the gulag, they had to go. A second story, which I'll mention, is one time Stalin was giving a speech and people got on their feet afterward and they gave him a standing ovation and they started applauding. And so they had been standing and applauding for one whole minute solid. Now, if you try that, that's, that's kind of exhausting to give somebody a standing ovation for literally a whole minute. Well, people were thinking, if I'm the first person to sit down, I might get shot or I might get taken to the gulag. So the applause went on for two minutes and then three minutes and then five and then 10 minutes. And then people are thinking, surely we can't keep doing this. This can't go on. It goes on for 11 minutes, 12, 13. Finally, at 14 minutes, one person said, I can't do this anymore. And this person sat down. Well, this person was apprehended and sent off to the gulag as a warning to everybody else. Thereafter, everybody learned, don't be the first person to sit down. 
The last thing, the second to the last thing that I'm going to mention are going to be the show trials. Now, a show trial is a fake trial. There is a novel called Darkness at Noon, which uh, a Hollywood screenwriter, Dalton Trumbow, did his best to suppress. It was based on a best-selling book of the same name, Darkness at Noon. I don't think it's available as a movie, but it certainly is available as a book. And it is about the Moscow show trials. The show trials were situations where the person put on trial was always found guilty. Always found guilty 100% of the time. The show trials had a wide variety of purposes. It was to get somebody to confess. Usually it was an insider. It was somebody who had sided with Stalin. And so this person who had sided with Stalin would tearfully proclaim, well, you know, maybe I was corrupted by my bourgeois parents. I thought I was a good communist, but I guess I'm not. So the minute they showed any disloyalty to the party, the party would do these show trials, send them off to the gulag, or perhaps have them executed. So it was to punish that person, but it was also to provide an example for everybody else. Unfortunately, I think the example people should have taken was this. If you're going to side with these communists, you need to understand that sooner or later, they're going to turn on you. There's a saying that the revolution always eats its own, just like in the French Revolution, where the man who spearheaded it, Robespierre, wound up getting the guillotine because he wasn't pure enough for the other revolutionaries. Similarly, in East Germany in the 1980s, there was a saying that the Stasi always eats its own. Now, the Stasi were the secret police. They played the role in the 1980s of the Gestapo in the 1940s or of the KGB in the Soviet Union during the era of the Soviet Union. And one way to get ahead was to figure out how to rat somebody else out. The last little story that I want to mention in terms of these show trials is this. I remember reading one time a man went to the police in Moscow to report a crime. And the police promptly arrested the man, reporting that he had been attacked and that he was the victim of a crime. They told him, don't you realize that you live in a perfect society? That the Soviet Union is a utopia? We have no crime in the Soviet Union. How dare you accuse anybody of committing a crime? So the innocent person would go to prison. The very last thing I think I want to say on this topic is something that I'd read about an Italian communist of the 1920s. His name was Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci basically wanted Italy to go communist, but his problem was is that the economy was prospering, and in a lot of the other Western countries, the economy was prospering. So all of his talk about the rich oppressing the poor and so forth really was not going anywhere because the poor were getting richer and everybody was doing well. So it just wasn't very popular what he was saying in terms of economics. So he changed his mind. He invented, I guess, what you would have to call Gramanskian damage, named after his last name, which the idea basically is this. Just split people against each other. If you can't have economic Marxism, have cultural Marxism, which is about destruction. If there are ethnic groups in a country, get the ethnic groups to fight with each other. 
get the men and the women to fight with each other, turn the children against the parents, turn the people of maybe this religion or that religion against each other. The basic idea all the time is create divisions, split people apart, make people hate each other. If there are no divisions, find divisions, create them and make them worse. That was Gromanski and Vamage. Um, and the Soviets and people like them use that sort of methodology all over the world. Well, I am just one resource for people, and I'd like to point people toward a few more. Now, some of these are books, some of these are movies, and some of these are documentaries, uh, books. There is a very long book called The Cold War by a man named Odd Arn Weston. Yes, Odd is his first name. I think he's Scandinavian. And the book is about 700 pages long, and it covers the history of the Cold War. And it's interesting because it's from not an American or a Soviet perspective, but from somebody from Scandinavia. But it's very good. Um, you can read the chapters out of order. You can just read about the decades you're interested in. Another resource that I want to mention are, is a documentary. CNN did a 24-part series called The Cold War. It was absolutely fascinating, absolutely riveting. And as far as I can tell, it is shockingly free from bias, which is very nice. Um, I'm sure there's some, but I, I think I've seen every episode twice or three times, and I didn't feel like it was slanted toward the left or toward the right. But, but I leave it to your observation to know. Um, a third series, which doesn't have a lot to do with the Cold War, but it was still great. And at the end, it does the Cold War does come into play, is the rise of the Nazi party. This was fascinating because almost everything I've ever seen about World War II is pretty much from the American point of view, occasionally from the British point of view. Well, in this series, it's, it's certainly not pro-Nazi, but what it does is, over 10 episodes, it shows how Hitler goes from being a nobody at the beginning of, or the end of World War II, World War I, sorry. In 1918, he's 29. He is homeless. He is jobless. He is friendless. Uh, he and his family are barely on any kind of speaking terms. He has no money. He has no education. He has no prospects. Uh, before the war, he was staying in a homeless shelter for a little while. How does a man like that go from that condition to being the dictator of a fairly major country. Because between 1918 and 1932, he has this incredible rise and eventually he winds up leading Germany. So that's a terrific series, The Rise of the Nazi Party. Now, America finally comes into this series somewhere around episode six, but you get to see all the twists and turns of Hitler's early career. Then you get to see what happened to him during the war. Never once is it pro-Hitler. I, I don't want to make it sound like the rise of the Nazi party is even remotely pro-Hitler. It's not. It just shows the story from the inside. Um, a few others. Now, this one is monumental. I mentioned it just a little bit ago. The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I believe it was published in roughly 1973. And it just completely changed the conversation about the Cold War. It sold so well, first of all, so maybe more people bought it and read it than they read Harry Potter. And what it did was it just destroyed anybody's ability to deny 
what had happened in the Soviet Union. Although there are some deniers out there today, there are some Soviet deniers out there today, what this book did was it blew the lid off of the gulags, the show trials, uh, the persecutions by Stalin, pretty much every single thing that you could think of. It's, it's very easy to read. It's long, but it's written at a white-hot heat of intensity. It's just really compelling in its excellence. Two last ones. These are fiction. One is a movie made in 2006 called The Lives of Others. And it is a film about ordinary people being persecuted and oppressed by the East German secret police. It is very powerful. It is very excellent. And it shows how East Germany was just constructed to lie to the world and to lie to its own people and to oppress people. Then the last one I want to mention is Mr. Jones, which I mentioned before, which is a fictionalized version of the true story of the reporter Jones who discovered the Ukrainian famine. Now, like I said, he was a writer for the New York Times, but then when he brought his pieces back home, his editor-in-chief was actually a big fan of the Soviet Union, and he believed that socialism was the wave of the future, so he spiked the story, he killed the story. And then Jones had to publish it separately, but then the New York Times fought him tooth and nail and questioned the veracity of everything that he'd seen and everything that he'd experienced when he was in Ukraine. That is also a very good movie. Um, some of these are just a little tough to watch. Uh, they are painful because of all of the things that I've mentioned, because of the purges you see in these societies, the secret police, the propaganda, the cults of personality, the famines, uh, the, the decimation of the economy, just the brutality, the inhumanity of just nasty behaving people toward other people. They can be tough to see. But ultimately, I want to thank Emily for her time. It was great to interview her about World War II. I, I wish more people would dig deeper into World War II and into the Cold War. I think it would change society for the better. I think sometimes in life, it's really important to know where the bottom is. How bad can things possibly get? And of course, it would also be wonderful and beneficial for everybody to see the peaks and to realize how good things could get as well. But that is the topic for another miniature episode. Thank you so much for listening to this mini episode and we'll be back in five days.